Have you ever dreamed of becoming an interior designer? You don't want to go back to university, you don't want to work for a large firm, but you just don't know how to get started. You want flexibility, you want to pursue your passion, and you want to make income. Well, you should definitely check out the Uploft Interior Design Academy. It's my proprietary program that I've used internally for years and have made available to the public. Not only do you get video modules that you can take at your own pace, but you also get one-on-one coaching sessions with me, group coaching sessions with our Facebook group of Academy students, and so much more. If you're interested, Get more information and sign up for an exploratory call with me at affordableinteriordesign.com slash academy. Once again, that's affordableinteriordesign.com slash academy. It's time to start living the life of your dreams. high-end designer or a lot of money to get a luxe look be your own interior designer this is affordable interior design the podcast here's your host betsy hellman let me guess you read the title of this episode and you said to yourself what is going on here isn't this an interior design podcast why is Betsy devoting an episode to Lula Rich, the docu-series on Amazon Prime? And the answer is, if you've been listening to this show, you know that I love true crime and I love entrepreneurship. And that is where these two subjects meet, right here in this docu-series from Amazon. So when my friend and I, Libby Rothschild, were discussing this series, we said to ourselves, let's do a podcast. I know a lot of my listeners are interested in the same subjects. And if you're not, bear with me. This docuseries is fascinating. If you haven't seen it, you might want to go watch it before you listen to this show. But uh, let's be real. The spoilers were in all the news stories. So you probably know what happens. You can dig in and then also decide if you want to watch it after you listen to this episode. Either way, enjoy. All right. I'm so excited to uh, share today uh, the space and time of Betsy. She's a peer who I met in the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Scholarship. And we have done a podcast previously to chat about her and the life of being an entrepreneur and being a mom. And today we're going to be talking about Lula Rich, the short docuseries on Amazon Prime and lessons learned, her perspective and mine. And I think it's going to be really fun and exciting. And I also want to have Betsy plug her podcast because she'll be sharing this on hers. And and, uh, we'll both be sharing this podcast on both of our podcasts, this episode on both of our podcasts. So uh, Betsy, will you explain a little bit about who you are and what you do? Of course. Well, Libby, it is so great to be talking to you because ever since I watched this documentary, first of all, I've been wanting to talk about it. And second of all, I've been wanting to talk about it with you as a fellow female entrepreneur. I think there's so much that we can learn and share, but also, you know, my listeners are interested in interior design, but a lot of them are either stay-at-home moms or moms of families or just women who are independent-minded, who want to have freedom of time and flexibility of energy, resources, never want to miss the soccer game or want to go to the spa when they want to go to the spa. It resonates with me. And so I am always fascinated by MLMs, frankly, multi-level marketing um, companies. But I found that this deep dive into Lula Rich really had a lot of aha moments for me. And so I hope that it will for my listeners and hopefully yours too. So even though it's Affordable Interior Design Podcast, I think there's going to be lots to take away. Yeah. And I'm really happy that we're going to be able to, that we're sharing space in this conversation. And I think it's really important for aspiring entrepreneurs. Uh, for, for my audience, the listeners are either wanting to start their business or they have their business and they're looking to uh, get more clients really. And I think it's important to understand what MLMs are and learn lessons from these two founders uh, from Lula Rich um, and I know Betsy and I had talked about a couple points we want to dive into, which includes w- lessons learned. What's great about this, um, about what they did, 
um, a little bit about what's problematic. I know there's a lot of press out about the problems and we want to give a a well-rounded picture. And then I would just love to hear a little bit of um, high-level overview about what MLMs are. To be completely transparent, it's not an area I have a lot of experience or knowledge of. So assuming that maybe my listeners don't know what MLMs are in, um, entirely, I think it'll be helpful to get um, your perspective and uh, about what that means and, and how uh, what lessons we can learn as business owners. Um, so to start from there, uh, would you like to give a little bit of a summary of Lula Rich or would you like me to kick that off? You kick it off and okay. then maybe I'll give a little summary about MLMs. How about that? That sounds great. Uh, so it's a docu-series on Amazon Prime about a business called Lula Rose that grew to billions of dollars while making uh, a lot of bad decisions. Um, again, some of some there is some positive lessons to learn, but there was a lot of decisions that they made. And, and that was on the um, documentary that shared a really negative light about them. Um, so I know Betsy and I will go into detail about that. Um, and many, just to, to highlight, many businesses struggle to make good decisions and scaling up isn't easy. And Betsy and I know that, and she's a perfect guest because we completed the scholarship together where we talk about developing our business acumen and looking at key metrics and numbers and um, uh, understanding process and people and hiring and marketing is super important. And I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn um, from the docuseries about how to make sure that you're doubling down on those efforts in your business from a beginner level all the way up to a higher level for those of you who are, are making money and you're, you're already uh, an entrepreneur, a successful entrepreneur. There's still something to learn from this series. Um, so in, uh, as a recap that I can't remember, do you remember the, um, co-owners names, the woman and the man, Betsy, yes. I don't have that in front of me. Okay. Yeah. Mark and Deanne Stedman. Yep. Okay. So Mark and Deanne Stedman had a family business. So they're married. Um, they're a religious couple who, uh, I would say they both have great marketing skills, especially Deanne and, um, her ability to, uh, she, she got started and fill in the gaps here. If I'm saying this correctly, she got started by selling something and she ended up uh, falling into an MLM kind of a situation where she had recruited a lot of women to help her um, sell the, um, how would little you? Dresses, how- the little girl's dresses. Yeah. I found her origin story to be fascinating because, you know, I think so many of us see opportunities, have an idea, but we don't chase them. And she had this idea, you know, from going shopping and seeing these little girl dresses that were so expensive outside of what she could afford. She had seven children. And then when she married, she had 14 children, but, um, due to the combined combined families. But anyway, so then she saw someone on the street selling these dresses at a fraction of the price. So she partnered with this person and had home parties to sell these dresses to her friends. And these dresses took off. And obviously she was making the person who had been selling the dresses on the street tons of money. And she herself was taking a huge cut. And so they kind of became this mini MLM, right? And she just saw the opportunity and seized it and put herself out there. Because I think that's another component is having the chutzpah to say, I'm going to do pop-up parties. I'm going to use my free time to network and tell people what I'm doing and go to their garages and set up all my racks. So I think there's something so admirable about that. Uh, and I think that that could be a really pure start, right? I think it's hard for any entrepreneur, and I'm sure this resonates with you, when you grow so big, so fast. Now, I have not grown so big so fast, so I don't feel I'm falling into this trap, but so many people get involved that I think if you're not really vigilant about the mission, the core values, you're pure intention that you started with can start to morph and become this thing that people don't know what the vision of the company is. They don't know that the company has values. Everybody's operating from a place of, you know, trying to catch up versus being a visionary. And so I think a lot of um, problems can come from that sense of urgency. So I definitely saw that that was 
may be the problem. And of course there's other insidious problems, but that as I was watching this four part series, I was like, the beginning was so pure and such a good idea. And there's so much to value. There's so much to take away in terms of that courage and the opportunity in the face of adversity. And then I just want to share briefly about my experience with MLMs sure. um, so everyone can kind of understand what the framework is. Yeah. So I've never been in an MLM, just to be quite clear, but a lot of my friends and by friends, I mean like people I knew in high school, mm-hmm. quote unquote friends, like Facebook friends, yep. neighbors from Brooklyn, friends of friends are in MLMs and they are really active on Facebook. So whether it's doTERRA oils or beauty counter or Arbon or, you know, um, LuLaRoe, which I definitely saw. And one of my friends is in this like CBD MLM and I watched her videos obsessively. Like I watched them multiple times, like in my free time. And I have no plans on selling CBD oils. But basically the whole thing about um, MLMs is that you earn money from recruiting others to sell the product. So you're supposed to be making quite a bit of revenue from the product and there are legal standards you have to abide by. But oftentimes the real money comes from recruiting friends and family to sell the same product you're selling. So that's why they call it a pyramid scheme, right? Because the more people you can get under you, the more money you will make. So you try and just recruit a lot of people to sell the same goods or services. It actually has to be a good legally. Um, So that way you've kind of built an army and you're making a percentage off of them. Mm -hmm. And then of course the person at the top is making the most, but there's leaders, there's levels. And so there's a lot of constraints about that. In other words, my friend who's selling the CBD, uh, she gets on these Facebook lives, these videos, I can't stop watching, but she never talks about the oils, the cookies, the shakes. She never talks about CBD. She only talks about like the freedom, the opportunity, um, how they should, you know, use their entrepreneurial networking skills to leverage their time so that they're not working for others. And so I'm like, but where's the CBD? Who's buying what? Like, when do you make money? And, you know, I think what was so fetching for me and tell me your thoughts on this was the enthusiasm that they were able to inspire in others. My friend who I never, I mean, she was my neighbor in Brooklyn. I never really saw her get effusive about much. She was just kind of a low key, really nice person. She gets on there and she's like lit up like a firework. And she's talking all about time freedom. And I'm buying what she's selling. Not literally, (laughs) I never bought anything. I just watched those videos obsessively. But she has this, crazy enthusiasm for the brand she's representing. And LuLaRoe, you totally saw that. So what what do you think about that? Because as an entrepreneur, it was so inspiring to think of millions of people being so enthusiastic about a movement that you've created. How does that happen? So I think that you brought up, and I really appreciate that you're starting with the positivity and things that you pulled from the docuseries that are not only relatable and personal to you because of the people you know and the experiences you've had on the internet, um, but you're not just, you're coming at it from a standpoint where you're not just starting with negativity. Because a lot of the times I hear conversations about this docuseries, they're all extremely negative and where I understand that, I think a well-rounded perspective is helpful. Um, helpful to pull out. So I, I really appreciate you coming at it from that angle. What I think from from what I learned is I would parallel what you're saying to a T, specifically about the enthusiasm. Um, so that is part of what makes an excellent leader, and it's hugely overlooked in most companies. And that's creating a, a, a clear mission and vision of the company and creating something uh, that people are excited about. And I think that is part of what they nailed. I don't know if they actually got the mission and vision in total really complete, but I do know that they were great at sales and marketing um, and great at getting uh, their ideal client clear, right? Whether you agree with that or not, they had a clear ideal client. They knew who they were selling to. They knew how to tell them how to sell to someone else. And what you mentioned is resonates so much that 
the your friend or person you know that goes on Facebook doesn't even talk about the product. She talks about the outcome. And to me, that's great marketing. Um, so whatever your thoughts are, that's an example of how marketing and sales is important. We'll talk about how, you know, Just what went wrong. Second. Let me yep. push back on that. Sure. Because she's not talking about the outcome of using the product. She's not saying, because I drink the CBD shakes, yep. I've lost 10 pounds and run yep. fast. And yep. she's saying the positive is coming from doing the business. And I agree. Talking about the outcomes is critical. But I just see the disconnect. You're supposed to be making money through the products. So you'd think talking about the outcomes of the products would be the inspiring hook. Well, if, if, and again, from what you've explained of MLMs and what I saw in the docuseries, if a majority of the monies is from recruiting, then it makes sense that she's appealing to on those lives, talking about getting people excited because who knows her market better than her if she's attracting similar people. So but legally, um, yeah, that is not legal. So, so understood. I, yes, I, so I get this it. Is and what I, and I'm I, like, loving that the illegal, and I mean, I am not a lawyer, nor am I in an MLM. But I love that they're just so open about it. Like yeah. you're supposed to be selling the products. Legally, you have to sell the product. Legally, you have to be selling to customers who are buying product, not selling and leveraging people. But, you know, that's how they're making these bonus checks. That's how. So, I mean, yeah. they're just so open about it. And it's so illegal. And it's like, what? <laughs> I just think I, I don't know where the regulation comes in with that as far as let's a good point. If you're supposed to be focusing on the product and there are stipulations, I don't know at what point uh, what those parameters are. Um, the but I will outline three because I don't really know either. But I thought the documentary, like you have to buy inventory because you're uh -huh. selling CBD yep. oil or leggings. Yep people. So you have to buy inventory and then you have to be able to sell it back to the company if you don't sell it. So it's yep. called a buyback policy. Then the other thing, there were three things that the documentary said. The other thing is 70% rule. So the person who's selling, they're called retailers, right? That stay at home mom or whoever's selling the product can only buy more product from the mother brand when they've depleted 70% of their inventory. And then the third is that they must be selling to at least 10 customers who are buying product. Okay. So they can't just be leveraging more recruitment. Yes. So those were the three that they listed in the documentary. Thank That's you. for th Thank you for your either meticulous notes or memory, because I'm much, uh, I really appreciate those details. Very helpful. I'm too um, obsessed with this stuff, Libby. Like I have a problem. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's it's great to to be aware, and this is a great lesson for me because MLMs and understanding and just reiterating because there was so much from the docu series what those three parameters are. I think is helpful just to develop everyone who's listening their their business acumen and just get a better understanding of different models, um, etc. Um, I do want to say that there the themes from this docu series. There's no way, and we're not even trying to cover all of them. I just want to state a couple notes that I have. Um, the themes are business strategy, business models, right? Which Betsy and I have covered MLM pyramid schemes, and, and Betsy just listed some of the criteria with MLMs. Women in business, partnerships, right? The dynamic between the two owners, people yeah. of color, nepotism. Uh, capitalism, copyright infringement, business oh ethics, leadership, narcissism, social recruitment, social media strategy, cancel culture. And I'm sure I'm missing more. So we're, there's no way we're going to cover all of those themes. Those are just a few. I love of the that notes. list. Yeah. Yeah. Those are a few of the notes I made. I want to turn that into some type of a, a post or something. And, and I'm not trying to address everything. We're talking uh, about Betsy's experience and MLM education. And then I love some of the theme themes that you spoke about earlier um, about being clear with uh, you know values and excitement and enthusiasm. And those are some of the traits that can that can start a business. And that, that is to be respected, even though there, there are some areas that definitely fell short. Um, so any ideas about some of those themes that stand out that you want to chat about or go deeper with the, some of the um, focuses, the foci? Well, I think there were a few things. I think the one that really stuck out to me was the nepotism. They kept, you know, they had a very large family because they combined two families, each mm -hmm. with seven children. And then those children had children and there were nephews involved. And, you know, 
So these people were hired at the highest levels of the company. And I think as entrepreneurs, you and I understand that because you want to hire people that you trust, people that have the same skin in the game that you do and potentially family members do because potentially they're there for the inheritance, you know, so you're all kind of on the same playing field in a way. As an entrepreneur, it can be hard to know who's on your team. So you assume that a bloodline would be on your team. That being said, as someone who, you know, I think it's really a slippery slope to hire family. And personally, I don't. Sure. Uh, Even though I could, and even though I have wanted to in the past, but sometimes when you're hiring family because of the loyalty chip or because of the shared values chip or, or whatever that looks like, you're not hiring due to skill sets. And so that's really what they highlighted here. Like we hired someone who was supposed to be good at marketing. She had no idea how to run a company of this size. We hired, you know, the son to do X, Y, Z. The nephew did all the events. He had no experience. You know, he was like just randomly calling Mario Lopez saying, well, you show up. So having sort of people run the ship who don't have the qualifications, even though perhaps there's that strong family tie, for me was one of the undoings of this company. And now it's time for a quick commercial break. Are you a fan of this podcast? Do you wish there was even more juicy content for you to sink your ears into? Well, there is. You can become a premium member of this podcast for $5.99 a month and get full access to an archive of over 50 bonus episodes. Additionally, we release a bonus episode every single month. That's a ton of extra content, including my personal interior design diaries, extra tips, my talking about trends, and so much more. Additionally, you'll be keeping us on the airwaves each and every week because your premium membership money goes directly back to making this podcast amazing. Check us out at affordableinteriordesign.com. Click on podcast to learn more and to become a premium member today. So I am no expert in family business. That's an entirely like that's a that's a specialty, right? I know people who specialize in family businesses and all the nuances, same as partnerships. It's a very complex topic. Um, I will say that what I learned from it that went awry is uh, they didn't. It, to me, it appeared that they didn't have policies or procedures or process like they didn't have processes in place, and that came uh, apparent to me. And I'm extrapolating in many different um, scenarios with regard to the family. So the, the marketing guy that said he wasn't qualified to run events, Mario Lopez, Katy Perry, et cetera, had mentioned that he didn't have a budget. And to me, to not have a marketing budget or to not educate your staff about what that means, whether it's family or not, I mean, again, I'm extrapolating, but that's not a sign of a business that I think is a healthy, well-functioning business because a key department like marketing and sales and HR, you definitely want to have a budget and and you want the person in that role understanding or seeking outside expertise or both. Um, I also saw shortcomings with process where I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy, he wasn't a family member that the admin um, that that they brought in, he had mentioned that their goal was to get a a certain, yeah, a certain amount of... I think I think everybody really liked him. He he was a likable character. That he, he mentioned that their goal for um, the customer service was just ticket number per day. Right, they were trying to get out and respond to customers. But in no conversation or dialogue did I hear anything about following a process. Right, a mm-hmm. template, a protocol, something about responding to those emails that also um, would uh, really showcase the values of the company. So I think that's also part of scaling is that when you grow that fast, you need policies and procedures in place. And I I didn't hear that. I have a thought about that because, you know, this is a four part series. They did not have a lot of time to get into the weeds. And plus, most people are not interested in the business background like we are. Like, that's what I want to know, too. Like, where's the templates? But you do not grow 
a multi-billion dollar business without having a great framework. So while I loved watching Daryl because he's like the person you want to take up for cocktails and he'll just spill the tea. He was also like my worst nightmare as an employer because he doesn't understand the hard work that it takes. He can easily say, oh, you know, I had to write 150 emails a day and this was my quota without sort of the other side of the story. And I was amazed at their process for onboarding. So the processes that they did share, there were a couple I was totally fascinated by and how they made people wait on a wait list. And you had to get the like LuLaRoe life-changing call and you had to wait like a number of weeks. And they did that intentionally, not only so they could catch up, but also so that they could have make sure that the retailer, which is what they're calling that stay-at-home mom Mm -hmm. or the person who signed up, that retailer could prepare. She could buy the racks. She could let her people know this is coming. She could make sure she was ready. And it looked like they were sending out sort of prep emails, like make sure you have these in place. I thought that was amazing to build the hype and also to really get these people in the right mindset. And then to amp them up, like that one lady picked up the call at her bachelorette party, you know, that she had just been onboarded. So I thought that process that they shared was really fascinating because, you know, when somebody signs up for your program or when they sign up for my academy, I just let them in, right? And I want them to just come in and they've already got enthusiasm, but could I make it more fun? Could I make it more of a party? Could I make it more compelling? Or is there something that I could do to kind of get them ready? I just signed up for this other thing, um, like this virtual assistant program. And they made me take classes for a month before I could get my assistant. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've had virtual assistants before. I've got a team of 10. What am I doing here? I got so excited with each class. They made it really fun, really motivating. I felt like I was in a community. I was so amped up for my first day. And they could have just given me a VA. So I, I, I really... Yeah, I, I appreciate your your storytelling there. Great, great example. Um, I would say yes, that's a process, but that's a marketing tactic, right? Urgency, exclusivity, making people wait. So I, I'd say it's a process embedded into their marketing strategy mm. that they employed to help them look like the premier option. And and let's not forget to mention social media and how that played such a big role with helping them be seen as this star opportunity that you had to get in there to pay for. And then, you know, yes. be on some kind of wait list. So I, I do agree. It sounds like if I'm hearing this correctly, at least what they showed us, because you have a good point that, you know, they, they might have not shown the, the parts that aren't as uh, tantalizing, right? Maybe where you and I wanted to hear, oh, what's the process? What's your strategy, et cetera. That might not have been as sellable as what they did show for the footage for, for people who um, might be more interested in the tea. That being said, I found that, um, I found that the, the, processes that they might've focused on. Again, this is my observation. We're more sales and marketing and less about managing operations, budget, and those types of things to run a business, let alone, I can't imagine to the, the size that they had and the amount of time they had are, are just as important and could have been how they fell to their demise. Uh, not to mention that companies that do scale up this fast have a lot of outside help. And I didn't hear anything about advisors. And that was one of the number one things to me. And in addition to the process I mentioned or the lack of processes, or again, maybe if that was just boring, they didn't mention it. Um, I think that if they were to have had gotten help or support about how to manage a family-owned business, how to have better policies and procedures for operations and customer service as much as they had for sales and marketing that could have helped them. And I think that's true for, for most businesses, even those that aren't of you know as, as big as LuLaRoe is. Um, so what are your thoughts about that? Well, let me just say, I mean, I don't know. I felt such empathy for these entrepreneurs. And I actually felt like the documentary was so skewed. Like, I didn't feel like they showed me enough employees. I didn't feel like they showed me enough balance of retailers. There was only one retailer that was still with the company today. I felt like it was really weighted to make us upset with them. And I am. I think that they are ultimately a really bad, immoral company. But there's two things that I think for me, marked the downfall. I don't even think it was the nepotism. Do I think that's a great idea? Absolutely not. Do I think advisors could have solved a multitude of sins there? Absolutely. You know, just hire a contractor for a temporary time, a consultant at a high level to help you get over that hurdle to teach these people. 
So I must say, I watched it through the lens of like, oh my gosh, this is so compelling. And I see so many things that could have gone almost right. So for me, the, the place where it really soured and the place where it took this dark turn is when they started using fabrics that would rip versus that really high quality fabric that was so buttery soft. That's what people kept saying at the beginning. Then they started to go with that cheaper material. It had a lot of issues. Then it would come moldy because they were storing these outside in large containers when they stopped caring. So that's when it really tipped for me because I think they could have solved all their problems if the love, caring, and concern for their retailers had remained intact. But when they stopped caring about the product and the people who sold it, that for me is when the whole thing broke wide open. So let me ask a couple of probing questions. um, And thank you for clarifying that. Um, It's really common for a business to, I mean, I'm assuming cut expenses to increase profitability. And that's, I'm assuming what happened, whether it was they had to get extra fabrics or they wanted to cut costs and increase margins. Those are my assumptions. Do you feel uh, that if they were true to their core values, if they even had them, um, that that would have helped them align if they had a strategy in place to say that we don't do A, we operate within B, and in order for us to act within our values, we're not going to do this? Um, do you think that would have helped? Or what do you think would have saved the day and pre- prevented that downfall? Because I do agree that that, that was obviously um, an interesting point. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, throughout the presentation, and so I should have remembered it throughout the presentation, they said that their like mission was giving families freedom and love or something like that. Mm -hmm. It was like something like that. I'm, I'm misquoting it exactly, but I think they lost that. I think they totally just turned their back on it and went for the low quality because then you're not caring about your retailers. If they're selling crap, if they're receiving crap, then you're not spreading love you know, you're spreading crap. And so I think the key when I'm looking at these MLMs is, is what they're actually selling quality because then they're contributing in a positive way. And what you sell reflects upon who you are. So if we think about these retailers as individual entrepreneurs, if I was selling crap, I'd feel pretty bad about myself every day. And as we know from MLMs, you sell to your direct network, to people on Facebook, to your friends and family, neighbors, et cetera. And if I'm selling crap to the people I love the most, the people in my inner circle, who am I? So the thing that allows me to put my head on my pillow every night, I do not run an MLM, Mm -hmm. is that I'm selling something really good. I'm selling something that is full of value and I pour more and more value into it with each iteration, making sure that it's going to actively change lives, making sure it's going to help people realize their dreams. And when I turn away from that mission to get more profit, to get another Mercedes, I don't have a Mercedes, I have a... 2012 Highlander, but they had like six Mercedes Benz, 500 class. I don't even know what that means. Um, when my focus changes, when I abandon that mission, my company is crap, you know, and it comes from the head. I truly feel it does. You know, I think we can see that with Amazon and Jeff Bezos and maybe some kind of negative attitude around the company and the values. I mean, not to get like super controversial, but I think there's many companies where the founders lose their way at a certain point. And I've seen it firsthand with companies that I use, right? And so I think the key is never taking your eye off that ball. And everybody who onboards for me and works for me, hears my origin story, not only so they know where I'm coming from in terms of really impacting people's lives, but also so that I remember where I'm coming from. I never forget it because I'm kind of humble and old and not a billionaire, but it's very helpful to stay why focused. And when you forget about your why, what do you have? Beautiful. And that's what I talked about on your podcast. Remember when you had me as your guest? So you I, must agree with me then, Libby. Come on. I now. totally, I, I do agree with you. Um, I also, I mean, I feel that it's a tricky subject because uh, I can't speak for the billionaire status, right? So I've achieved the millionaire status, not the billionaire. I understand greed comes into play. I also think that you have to define what does scaling mean? 
and uh, make some decisions and be transparent about them. And, and this is where we go into capitalism and some other thoughts about philosophies of business. And and I think the the trick with scaling is not losing quality, but understanding that with your product, there will be the more people that you help, um, it's going to change a little bit. So it doesn't mean you're going to go from buttery soft to super mold. That's not ideal. And I understand that that's the version they told us might've left out some details, but I do think that there is some percentage, uh, that will, that will change with your product as you grow that big. So you, you don't, you want to avoid that. Like I, I, um, a mentor told me on a coaching call, um, you want to look like cake boss and taste like cake boss. Um, but the idea, like if you're thinking about scaling, you remember, you think of cake boss and how beautiful it is. You want it, you want, if you are a cake boss, you want to maintain, um, the, the, the beauty and aesthetic, and you also still want to taste like it. But when you scale to that capacity where you're that big, um, you're probably going to lose a little bit of the aesthetic and it might not taste as good as it once did. And and that's, I think, the reality to some extent with businesses that scale to that capacity. And I don't think we can understand or fathom that because they're billionaires and we're, we're not at that level. And can so- I ask a why really quickly? Because as you're saying that, I'm like, why? These people have more money, more access to, you know, manufacturing, they can buy in bigger bulk. Why couldn't they even get better quality? Do you know what I'm saying? For the same margin, because now they're buying exponentially more. So I understand with Cake Boss, you might lose personalization because there's a soul custom, right? You want the Paw Patrol cake with your son's name and maybe only two characters. And now they only do one character. I don't know. But for something that's not personalized, right? For something that's you know, we're talking about the ingredients in the cake, not the personalization of the cake, because LuLaRoe did not personalize the leggings. They just made the leggings. So why couldn't you afford even more buttery soft material? I just feel like when you lose, because I agree with you, you know, sometimes the more chains you get, like I always think of food. So it's funny that you brought up cake because food really resonates with me. But like when you take a small restaurant and turn it into a chain, the food isn't going to taste as good, but why can't you afford even more premium products? And wouldn't that set you apart? And wouldn't that create brand loyalty? And I don't know. I, I want to talk to your business coach about that. <laughs> and I am not a billionaire. So I think that, um, I think that there, there's a point, uh, I, I agree with you on, on the fact where you want to stay true to what different differentiates you. And one of the first lines in, in the docu-series is buttery soft, and that helps them differentiate. And so I do think that you want to maintain that. And I understand, I think that's a part of strategy, um, partially operations too. So with respect to making a decision about the, in this particular circumstance, about the fabrics and, and the product, right? And keep like the ingredients or the cake uh, metaphor or whatever with this, it's the the leggings. How do you keep it as is um, up to standard as possible. And I think that's a strategic decision. And I do agree that maintaining that is maintaining the brand. It, it could also be an operational thing in the sense of what is uh, what are they able to make fast enough? Um, what can they produce and send out meeting quota and numbers? And, and that's where it goes. It, um, operations and strategy work together. And right. so it could have been, and I'm speculating, is it greed where they want to hit a certain like number? Obviously, if you grow to a billion that fast, right? So you, and, and the, um, the, I can't remember the gentleman's name. Um, Matt, what was the guy's name? The, the husband? Oh, Mark. Mark. Yeah. I'm yeah. not as good with those, those details. So Mark had said that they wanted to hit their numbers and he was shocked that they did. Um, they didn't mention what those numbers are, but my assumption is that they, they had these pie in the sky numbers and they might've prioritized the numbers over the quality. And that could have been what led to what you think is a demise. And that's very common. And obviously you don't want to do that, whether you've got a, a product or a service, that's not ideal. Um, so you want to find that sweet spot where you're, you're able to, like you said, um, make some changes when you go from mom and pop to chain, right? There's going to be like maybe less personalization, like you said, whatever the example might be, but you don't want it to be so, so stark that people are then unhappy um, or you've lost what makes you different. And that's, um, that's not good. And, and that could be, could be greed. It could be um, mismanagement. It could be a lot of things. Well, and I think you have to create a touchstone. You know, and in the entrepreneur world, that is, there is that rule, that 80% rule that when you delegate or when you hire, they need to do 80% of your expectation and just assume that 20% is going to miss the mark or not be up to standard. But as long as they're at 80%, you've got a good 
quality representative. So I see that margin missing, but I think you have to decide for yourself what that threshold is. And I think Lou LaRoe said, if it's 25% of what, you know, we, our standard was, then it's good enough. Or they were ignoring when people were complaining, right? They didn't address the mold. They wouldn't return the leggings. So I think, I think also not valuing the retailer, right? Not valuing the retailer or the product was ultimately the demise, in my opinion. I think everything else was comebackable. <laughs> you know, I think the nepotism was solvable. I think the lack of process was solvable. I think, you know, the money mismanagement was solvable. They were still making a ton of cash. But I think those two things, not caring about the product or the person who sells it, you can't come back from that. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I appreciate your perspective. So what I'm hearing from you and what I agree with firsthand experience um, and no matter what you're selling product or service, right. And I'm just saying that for, for our listeners here, uh, dietitian, um, bosses, uh, those who are selling, let's say memberships, courses, services, brand sponsorships, affiliates, et cetera. Um, you've got to prioritize people, right. Is that what I'm hearing? So people meaning well, people and product, you know, yeah. like if, if I always go to cake boss because they have delicious cake and now the cake sucks, I'm not going there anymore. Cause I go there for product. Right. But also when you're a retailer, somebody who exclusively sells to their closest people, I think that's a problem. But I had a real question for you and this is going to take a turn, but I must know. Okay. In the third part, I think they took this weird turn that maybe I would have even cut out of the whole docu-series because I felt like it was kind of irrelevant, but it was definitely gossipy and interesting. And as a dietitian, I just need to know your thoughts on this, please. So if you remember in that third part, she was convincing her top retailers to get weight loss surgery in Mexico. And she was offering them like a discount and a group package deal if they all go to Mexico and get weight loss surgery. That just felt like really out of left field. Uh, and I just thought that that was an odd turn. Did you find it to be out of left field? What do you feel about the entrepreneur? kind of going that way? Well, well, firstly, um, it's, it's not anything new. I think it's really common that businesses expect or require uh, staff to like have a certain appearance. It's illegal. So Abercrombie and Fitch has been sued for this. So is Hooters. So um, it, especially, uh, I mean, obviously I have a lot of opinions, but to just mention it from a business standpoint yeah. it's common that there can be a certain kind of archetype that they're looking for. I don't think it's ethical. Um, but I, I think that it might've been that the um, founder was preying on uh, the retailers and wanted us things to look or feel a certain way for, for whatever reason. I, I don't think that's legal. I'm not entirely sure if that's legal or not. I know there's been copious lawsuits um, that I you brought up those other companies. I had not drawn that parallel at all. Yeah. So, so it's not, and, and again, these are over the last decade or so that I've, I've heard about this from different retailers um, expecting a certain aesthetic. And I, I know that there's been lawsuits and that there's been money owed in settlements for that. So I, you know, from my perspective, I believe that you should, you know, absolutely be inclusive and have inclusive like hiring practices for, for I, again, MLM models a little different than what I'm used to. And I'm learning a lot from you about it. Um, so I don't, I, I don't think that's particularly ethical. And I, I know that they, you know, sensationalize the whole conversation and in, in the docuseries about how it went down. Um, so I think that's pretty horrific and it's, it's pretty uncomfortable. Um, and I'm also, um, I'm not sure if that's legal. So I think that they were trying to add more gossip and trying to, like I mentioned at the top of this interview, uh, or at the top of this conversation, they added so many different concepts. Um, again, people of color, um, you know, like body positivity or the lack thereof. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that there's so many concepts to unpack from this. I will say that they could have made many several series out of this um, just to talk about any one of those topics. So I, I feel like it was a lot for me to take in um, yeah. I'm looking at it from a business standpoint. And, and again, like there, there's so many subcategories under it. So 
to, to answer your question, I think that th- this is nothing new. It's something that has happened. I, I can't say, you know, weight loss surgery, but I know Abercrombie was sued for not hiring someone that looked at a certain aesthetic. And that's actually happened. I'm not going to mention who, but it's de- happened in, in industries that in my industry. I'm not going to mention mm. on air, but it's very, it has been common in the past. I can't say well, since that's 2020. What I was thinking like in your industry, I wonder if there's any sort of crossover. So it's just interesting, but um, now I see why it's perhaps more relevant as a business practice versus it seemed like she was just taking some of her besties and like getting a kickback from the doctor. So I hadn't seen it as more of a image conscious thing, but I think I was looking at the wrong lens. I don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong per se. I'm not, that's a great perspective. I don't really understand the motive if it was, um, you know, a discount or if it was a brand image representation, um, I think again, it crosses over a, a lot of ethical um, aspects, and it, it goes into a whole another conversation about body acceptance and um, probably investing in some type of program for wellness and empowerment and counseling services would have been a great, and that's on trend, is to reinvest back into your staff and mm-hmm. allow them, you know, visits with um, like wellness opportunities and therapy and all those things. I think to be on trend, that that probably would have been a, a great opportunity. So it's. Uh, a little horrifying to hear that, um, for sure. Yeah. Well, and one thing I really wanted us to briefly talk about, there was one part of this whole business model that I thought was absolutely genius. And I just wonder how it could apply to other industries or if it even does. So tell me what you thought about this, because they mentioned it several times, you know, the, the great thing about their business is that women love to connect women love to help other women, which I definitely feel with us in our relationship, but also (laughs) in general, I love to see other women succeed and lift them up. But the thing about this is oftentimes when you're in an MLM, you're selling the same stuff. You're all selling the CBD shakes. You're all selling the oils, right? And with this, every legging or a lot of the leggings had different patterns. So you were constantly selling different things and you were helping each other. Who has the octopus leggings? Who has the hamburger leggings? And how can I get my friend to buy from my other friend? Because she has what you're looking for. And I don't right now, but in my next shipment, I will have the unicorn pattern, they called it. So I just thought it was brilliant how these women are all essentially selling the same thing, leggings, maxi skirts, dresses. But because the patterns are so wide and varied, the things are different. And you'll want to buy from your cousin, as well as your sister, as well as that person in Ohio you don't know, because they have somewhat different things that are exactly the same. Does that make sense? So I thought it was really beautiful that they created sort of no competition. And I don't want to say no, but they really reduced that level of direct competition and made it more of a community through what they were selling. Ideally. So behind closed doors, I think that depends on your personality, social acumen, ability to make things work within a time frame. Um, That takes a certain skill to be able to, let's say, take the octopus pattern and be able to move it in amount of time with respect to your balance and your other priorities. So it's in theory, I think it's a great idea in practice. Uh, that could be like an entire like show of survivor. Um, because I don't really know I the crappy leggings, the bad pattern. Well, and you know what just I'm, occurred to me? Yeah. When you challenged that, which I love that you said that because the minute you flipped it on its head, I was like, I wonder if the new retailers right? Those people who don't have a large network got crappy patterns. Like, do you think the coveted unicorn patterns were more likely to go to big sellers? I don't know. I mean, I would speculate depending on given what we saw from this docuseries and given that we've talked about, especially with a recap of our conversation earlier, losing some of what got you to where you are, which we could say, if you agree, is that part of their differentiation, right? You've got these buttery soft leggings that have fun patterns for their market. And once you lose that, you make the patterns competitive, you lose the buttery softness, things are moldy. Um, if you're trying to keep certain numbers and people at the top of the, the, the um, uh, I don't know if you want to call it pyramid, because I don't know if that's appropriate language, but people at the top um, the retailers are going to be more valuable in terms of money and dollar. Um, my speculation, again, I, I, this is nothing factual. This is my speculation, is that if 
the founders wanted to yield a higher margin, which we already know they do, they might drive more unicorn patterns to those that are going to have more under them. And this is just a, a business decision that from a sheer profitability standpoint, would be something parallel with the previous decisions I saw them make in the docu-series. What are your, what are your thoughts about that? Again, nothing to prove. It's just a speculation. My thoughts on that, or I'm going to revise what I said at the beginning, that that was a genius <laughs> idea. And I'm going to turn it into that was an evil genius idea. Because I could totally see how you could make it the haves and the have-nots. And how you could drive more success to that top tier or the second tier, whatever tier that leadership tier was, and then get them to recruit more. Look at my videos. Look at these cool leggings I'm getting. You'll get these leggings. But I don't know if this company was organized enough to even have the forethought of what would be the unicorn leggings. Um, But I just think that's fascinating. And I wouldn't put it past them. So you say they're not organized to have the unicorn legging scheme that we're plotting, but they were organized enough to have an amazing funnel for people that they're recruiting and have them wait, which creates exclusivity and urgency. So if you're you know, smart enough to prioritize that funnel, I wouldn't put it past them. Because if you're thinking as a business owner of where's the profitability, um, as and you know they have because they grew to a billion dollars fast, I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't put it past them. Um, that being said, I feel like it creates uh, definitely this society or this environment where uh, unless if people are trained and even then so, it takes a certain skill set to be able to move product. Um, if you don't have the same product as someone else, it's going to create, I would say, a lot of um, anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. Or you, Yes, I could see that, that could, it, they might make it look empowering, but I could also see it for certain personalities be daunting and like you'd lose sleep and anxiety ridden. Deflating. Like people are calling you for the octopus leggings and you're like, I don't actually have those in my pack. Oh, okay. Well, you know what I'm learning from our conversation, Libby, <laughs> which is maybe not a good lesson to be taking away. I am naive, dude. Like all these things that I thought were interesting or hooks are really compelling, have a truly dark side that you could spin that way if you don't look at it holistically. So I'm really glad that we're able to have this conversation because it's helping me to see the flip sides. Well, I I appreciate that. And I also, uh, I appreciate you bringing in your positive spin where it's not a complete bash of Lula Rose and we're, we're able to take the business. And, and I know we didn't touch on everything. You know, I, to be honest, we could have gone deeper on a lot of these. This is a very almost topical conversation about uh, what we're unpacking here. Um, but I think it's, it's great as you know, business owners to take a look at lessons we can learn. So what would you say are the top two to three lessons, whether from this conversation or not, that you've taken away from this docuseries? or that you want to impart on your listeners, which could be different. (laughs) Oh God. Well, all these lessons and takeaways I was so excited about. Now they seem like really bad. Um, They can be negative. Like they don't have to be, we've, we've been plenty positive before. That's all right. I did think that there was a, a real strong, like creating a company that creates retailers that don't compete with each other, even though they're essentially selling the same thing. But now I realize there's dark side. Uh, I don't know. You know, I really, I think my takeaway is that this demographic, women who have that drive inside to contribute to their family or their own personal lifestyle, whether or not they have a family, women who have that drive to kind of make their own way, even if it's within someone else's framework, can move mountains. Like they can sell trillions of leggings. They can you know, leverage all their friends and family to really get them to the place they want to be. So there's so much power in that energy when channeled the right way. And, you know, these people who may have felt isolated, you know, stay at home moms who are just with their kids and they don't feel like they have a strong community. I'm just reflecting some of the stories that were in the documentary, not a general story, can find community and create so much power. So I just think don't underestimate the power of women who want something for themselves, something different than the norm, something different than the mainstream. So that's a huge takeaway because the women were really driving this success story. Beautiful. I I love that. That's, that's a beautiful takeaway. I would say my top two 
Number one would be don't underestimate the power of social. So one thing we didn't get to dive into deep totally. is social media, as you mentioned, doesn't matter, you know, it happened to be Facebook, but the, the power of using social as a, as a um, recruiting tool and as a marketing tool, as you've mentioned, the personal story with your, your friend doing CBD with MLMs and, and this um, particular business leverage the power of social to sell and to, to market um, and to recruit. Right is huge, and I think it's completely dismissed. Um, so social, the the power of social recruiting is real. I want to write an article about that. That's number one. Again, I'm not going to go into the evils or whatever of it, but just knowing that that's something that I, I don't. I think we could talk more about in depth, and that I think business owners can employ in, in, in a positive way. And number two, what I think, what does it mean to scale? And and not uh, it can be individualized for different people, not to scare people who are newer in business. But I think there is a way to do it that holds true to your values. And you brought that up at the top of the conversation, like one of the first things you said, and I think you you said it really well about aligning with mission and core values and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I think the last thing, which might actually be the, the most important lesson, is getting help is hugely important. Whether it's a consultant. A peer group, Betsy and I did a scholarship together, right? All of the opportunities that you have to be able to reach out and get an opinion from someone else is huge. I don't know any company, million dollar, let alone billion, that doesn't have outside help. Like I'm in peer organization, I'm in several peer organizations. I've had coaches over the years and it's helped me as someone who has a clinical, not business background, understand that the way I want my business to look the way I want to make an impact on the world and the way that I want our staff to be treated has been a hugely in part because of the business communities I've chosen to, to be a part of. And I think that that's something that wasn't highlighted or that was forgotten or dismissed from, from the series. And I think it's hugely important. And perhaps a huge part of their downfall. I mean, they're still in business today. So downfall question mark, who knows what's going on over there. But I will tell you right now, if I was operating business that had a horrible reputation, that had lost its way in values, mission, and purpose, there'd be a lot of shame there. Um, and so I think it's just a real wake-up call to not only entrepreneurs, but you hear about people who win the lottery, people who kind of get drawn by greed and they lose their way. I think yeah. there's something to really remember um, and come back to. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind that you could say the same thing. Has Facebook lost their way? Have Has Amazon lost their way? So this is, again, a bigger conversation. But I about think what those is it businesses mean? were not originally founded. I think those businesses didn't start with a clear way. But we've got more to say, Libby. I love talking. <laughs> <laughs> those businesses were started for a whole other reason. Um, I think they knew their intentions from the start. But... Uh, I digress. That's for another podcast, but I just love talking with you. Thank you so much for, um, first of all, I think I saw you on social, speaking of social, writing about this. And I was like, I want to talk about it too. So yeah. I'm so glad we talked about it together. Yeah. Thank you for joining. It's an absolute pleasure. And just to to circle back to what I had mentioned earlier about you know being a part of peer groups and improving your business acumen and how I met Betsy in a, in a scholarship, Betsy and I are going to attend a women's uh, event through entrepreneur organization in a month or two. And so that just doubles down on how important it is to be involved in your community of entrepreneurs. Um, do what you can. There are a lot of free resources that can help you um, improve your skill sets and make sure that you're keeping up with relevant conversations. And I think that that can't be stressed enough, especially in, in lieu of this documentary. So thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, Betsy. Well, and speaking of documentary, guys, if you have not seen it, head over to Amazon and you can catch out Lula Rich. It was really eye-opening, has stayed with me. And also it's pretty, like the colors are pretty, the fonts are pretty. As somebody who's visually oriented, I just love the flashes of color. So I think there's a lot to be gleaned and you can have it on in the background. Uh, it's not something you have to intensely focus on to get the takeaways. Like I would eat lunch and watch a little and watch a little. Um, and it was like chatting with girlfriends and chatting with Daryl. Yeah. And he was awesome. So there we go, everyone. But it's been wonderful chatting with you and don't miss this docuseries. It was, it was a pleasure. Great, great um, mention there, Betsy. I, I agree. Bye. You've asked for it and we have answered the call. For years, you've been saying, Betsy, 
you're talking about all these great design concepts, but we can't visualize them. You're describing the picture that the listener sent in of their problem, and we wish we could see that picture too. After all, a picture is worth a thousand words, and I do my best to describe them, but there's nothing like seeing it for yourself. And that's why Affordable Interior Design, the podcast, now has a YouTube channel. Not only do we have a YouTube channel where you could see recordings and clips of these podcast episodes, we also have an Instagram, a Facebook, and so many other exciting things. You should check it out. Head over to affordableinteriordesign.com slash links. Once again, affordableinteriordesign.com slash L-I-N-K-S links. And when you go there, you will see links to our YouTube page, our Instagram page, our Facebook page, and more. Please check it out, follow and subscribe so you can see everything I'm talking about. A big thank you to our amazing producer, Catherine Heller, to Aton and the MBCR House Band, and to Affordable Interior Design, the sponsor of this podcast and the premier place to get an amazing look on a budget. Check out affordableinteriordesign.com. If you guys love the show, the very best way to support us is by spreading the word. Tell your friends or write us an awesome review on iTunes. So until next week, guys, thanks so much for joining us, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.